Corrie ten Boom, a Dutch Christian who aided the escape of Jews during the Holocaust, wrote, Be united with other Christians. A wall with loose bricks is not good. The bricks must be cemented together. Now, many will take the notion that being cemented together is more than just simple church attendance, even more than being in agreement. Instead, it produces an image, an image of a building, of a church building. And the question we're going to be posing today is whether membership of that church being cemented together is a biblical concept. And further to this, whether our local church membership that we operate is bringing about that unity that Corey describes as being cemented together. But before delving into the matter of church membership, I think it's important that we have some foundational truths to underpin what we're talking about here. And so I'll be asking several questions through this session and hopefully bringing some biblical answers to those questions. And so the first question is, what do we mean by church? What do we mean by church? Well, the Sunday service is often what is described as church, church on Sunday. But we know that the church family do so much more than just gather on a Sunday to worship. We could describe our buildings that we're hoping to get back to this year as the church. But we also know the church is more than just bricks and mortar that would surround us. So the simplest way really to describe the church is to say this that you are the church. And what I mean by that is gospel-believing Christians are the church. God has always desired to create a people for himself, a people who would love him with all their hearts and a people whom God would show great faithfulness towards. Just consider this Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Here in Deuteronomy, God envisioned his church through the nation of Israel, that being a select group of people that came through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to be faithful towards their creator God. However, sin continually caused Israel to be unfaithful to their commitment to the Lord and to the commitment to serve him. And really the whole of the Old Testament describes this constant story of sin toward God. So by the end of the Old Testament, we have this wrath of God being poured out onto the people and 400 years of silence before the New Testament. And as we start into the New Testament, God then envisions his church established through the cross of Christ. To those who would humble themselves before God, repent and seek forgiveness in Christ by grace and through faith in Jesus, they are then welcomed into the family of God, that being the church, the people of God. Just look at how Peter describes it in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Now, at this stage, I think it's important that we consider two important Greek words. The first word is ecclesia, which is the word in the New Testament for church, and its meaning is to call. The word ecclesia is mentioned in the New Testament over 114 times, and in each case, it describes the church, showing that it's always God's ordained plan to call people toward him, and those people would live holy lives before him. However, let's consider another Greek word, and that Greek word of koinonia, 
which has no direct English translation, but it describes the fellowship, the sharing, the participation, the communion that Christians enjoy. It describes a oneness that can only be achieved through the Spirit of God. In other words, it can only be achieved by coming to God by grace through faith in Jesus. We therefore, when we describe the global church, that being all gospel-believing Christians in this world, they are ecclesia, called by God, and koinonia, one through God. And all of this is by the will of God and established through the work of Christ. So the global church is ecclesia, called by God, and koinonia, one through God. However, when we take our look from a global picture into a local setting and really dial into the local church, we do not lose these characteristics. But in the words of Jonathan Lehman, a Nymarks director, the local church becomes an embassy of Christ's kingdom. Or putting it another way, the local church, wherever that may be, even here in Lincoln, is an outpost of ecclesia and koinonia. Christians gathering for the sake of God's kingdom. There is a local calling to God and a local one through God. And so we know that the local church is made up of those in Christ, called by him and one through him. Now that local church and global church both have two key areas of focus. The great commandment, Matthew 22, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. Now the second uh, great key focus of the church is that of the great commission, Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Therefore, we have a universal or global church, that's all gospel-believing Christians in the world, and we have a local church, an outpost or an embassy of Ecclesia and Koinonia, and they both work toward the same goal, that great commandment and great commission and being obedient to both. So now we understand the basic understanding of what we mean by church, we can now ask the next question, which is, is membership of that local church a biblical concept? Now, before answering that question, we have to once again establish what we mean by combining membership and the local church. Uh, Michael Horton is really helpful here, a professor of theology at Westminster Seminary, California, writes, When you open your Bible, stop looking for signs of a club with voluntary members. Look instead for a Lord and his bound together people and for other forms of unity. So let us consider what God says about this universal church and the outworking of its membership, looking specifically in the word of God for the Lord and his unified people. And really, there are several passages that could cover this topic, and we'll come on to a few of those later. But for now, let's turn our attention to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, and he writes to this early church in Corinth. In chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, Paul describes a membership of the universal or the global church with use of a body as imagery. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
Each Christian is a member of this universal body, the body of Christ. Paul describes it further by saying, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Paul gives us this picture that all those in Christ are members of the whole body, the whole church of Christ. There's great diversity, yet great unity in this church. All are essential to the whole. In fact, no member can leave or stop working toward the whole because all would then suffer. Now, some of you might be clever at this point and point out that Paul is mainly focused on the universal church, that global church, and that he cannot be referring to this local church setting. Yet, surely it it can be said that the head of the local church, as is the global church, is still Jesus. Can it not be said that the church is the people gathered? Can it not be said that the local church is made up of many people with various gifts and talents? Can it not be said that when in the local church one rejoices, we all rejoice, and when one weeps, all weeps? You see, the picture of the global church is the same as the local church. Now, do you remember how I described it at the beginning of this talk, how I described the local church, that embassy, that outpost of Ecclesia and Koinonia? Well, let me just uh, dial that in a little bit more that we speak the same language, that we fly the same flag, that we recognise each other as citizens of that great kingdom of God. And the local church does that intimately. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh minister, states, we must cease to think of the church as a gathering of institutions and organisations, and we must get back to the notion that we are the people of God. You see, membership in the universal church, in the global church, that being all Christians, is biblical because by the very nature of it, we are God's people. That's what makes us part of the global church. Therefore, we can say that in a local setting, in a local church, we are still the people of God and that our membership is not based on our level of involvement or our level of skill, but based on our faith in Christ. Ephesians 2.19 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Going back a little bit to Jonathan Lehman's quote that said the local church is an embassy of Christ's kingdom, let me now give you the whole quote. The local church is an embassy of Christ's kingdom. And kings do not offer suggestions, sell products or provide resources that the people can take or leave. The embassy exists by the authorization of Jesus. Do you see that membership of the local church is authorised by Jesus, not as a suggestion, but as a command to ensure that you localise and live out your global church membership. And we get this most amazing picture of this shown to us in Acts 2 and the fellowship of the believers. 
and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all and any who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The early church just got it. They recognised that being found in Christ, they were then to come together in a local setting to learn, to worship and to serve as the local body of Christ. They were committed to one another in their discipleship and in their service for Christ. They were committed local church members. Now, we can go to several other passages to show that local membership exists, really, again, bringing that, uh, underpinning that foundation to the fact that it is indeed a biblical concept. If we head into the New Testament, we have Paul's letter to Timothy, dealing with uh, problematic members called Hymenaeus and Alexander, who end up getting removed from membership because of their sinful behaviour. Then we have Paul's letter to the Philippians, dealing with two members who, in fact, were church workers who were in disagreement and who were encouraged to come together. Then we have Hebrews thirteen seventeen: Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Showing us clearly that members had a local church leader that they were to obey. In 1 Peter 5, we have, So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, showing us that there was local church leaders who were to shepherd or care for a local church membership. You see, in just asking these two questions, what is the church and what is the local church, we can reach a point where we can say that there is a biblical basis for localising your global membership of the body of Christ. So taking that body of Christ that describes all gospel-believing Christians and localising it into one church family and membership of that one church family. Now the question that follows is who can or who should become a church member? Who should formally become that church member? And really, this is now the, the kind of formal process. We know that it's Bible-believing Christians, we know it's global to local, but who should become members? Now, many churches will give a clear basis of membership in their constitution, usually stating several factors. And we'll come on to a few of those in a moment. First, though, I want to be clear on two aspects, two key things that when it comes to church membership is essential. Uh, the rest will be kind of added on top of that, but these two things underpin what is church membership. And the first one is you must be a Christian to be a member. You must be a Christian to be a member of the church. At John chapter one and from verse 12, but all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born nor of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Remember, the church is not the building, the service or even its ministries. The church is the people of God. Those who have come to God, who have believed in him, who have received the great gift of salvation, who have been born again through Jesus. 
So it's really not much of a leap and a jump to say that you cannot be a church member, a recognised member of the church, if you do not first belong to the family of God. Now to hit that point home a little bit further, we head to Matthew 16 and verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say the John Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or the one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, if the elders and the church leaders were to ask in a membership meeting who Jesus is to you, and you cannot say with deep conviction and honesty that he is the Son of God who lives and dwells in the children of God, then not only are you not a Christian, but you cannot therefore be a church member. But those who can with conviction declare Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, they can then enjoy the promise that is Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. As a child of God, you're not only sealed into the global church, but you're welcomed into the local church. Now, the second thing that really is quite important when it comes to local church membership is that of baptism. And I believe the second thing is that you should be baptised. One, you're a Christian. Second, you are baptised. Now, I'm acutely aware that our church constitution here at Lincoln Baptist doesn't state this as a requirement, but go with me and, and try to keep an open mind here. Does it say anywhere in the Bible that to be a church member, you must be baptised? No, it doesn't. But does the Bible command all Christians to be baptised? Yes, it does. So just for a moment, just park church membership for a second and consider this one verse. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. Keep that verse in mind as we go to several other passages. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're to go and lead people to Christ. Then what? We are to baptise them. Acts 2.38 Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What shall we do in response to the gospel? Repent and be baptised. Acts 8.37 And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptised him. The Ethiopian believed and was baptised. Do you see that in becoming a Christian, we're then commanded to be baptised? to show by means of baptism that our old self is dead and buried and that the new life has been raised, reborn in Christ. So if you love Jesus and if you're a Christian, then you're commanded to be baptised. And John 14, 15, if you love me, you keep my commands and therefore you're baptised as a believer in Christ. Now, interestingly, during the time of the early church, having faith in Jesus in many cases resulted in persecution and serious danger to life. 
There was great concern over those who would then try and come in and pretend to be Christians at really bringing about persecution within the church. Think of it as a wolf in sheep's clothing. To be baptised, therefore, is to publicly declare your faith in Jesus and publicly give a sign that you were affirming your faith and being part of the church. Therefore, it's highly unlikely that those that would fake it to bring persecution would do such an act, for it would bring persecution upon themselves. You see, in the New Testament, we don't see any believers in Christ not being baptised. In fact, upon believing in Christ, almost instantly people were baptised in the name of Jesus. And so when it comes to the matter of church membership, the question really has to be asked why anyone in the church membership would not want to be baptised, would not want to affirm their faith and would not want to declare that Jesus is their Lord. And so we have these two prerequisites, to be a Christian and to be baptised. On top of these two prerequisites of membership, some churches include statements of faith, really statements of accountability towards one another. And let me be clear, these are extra things, extra elements that are on top of to be a Christian and to be baptised. And they're usually for mutual accountability and care of the church membership. And what I would say uh, really to church leaders is we should always be careful never to elevate these extra things above being a Christian and being baptised, but recognise the accountability is there to nurture church members. And so then we have this question, how should baptised, gospel-believing church members behave? In other words, how do we keep them accountable? How do we be a church body together, operating in holiness before our Lord Jesus? Well, Tom Rayner really helps us out here, president of Lifeway Ministries and church researcher in his book, I'm a Church Member. He uses the concept of a country club membership to describe a common misconception of church membership. He describes a situation where you pay a fee to a, an exclusive club and in paying that fee you have access to perks. Uh, without your membership you couldn't receive them but with your membership you get these great perks. And I quote from the book, membership means perks, membership means privileges, membership means others will serve me, just pay the going rate and enjoy a life of leisure. As Christians, we often approach church membership in this similar way. We join churches expecting perks. Others will serve me, others will feed me, others will care for me. In extreme cases, we'll use our voting and our financial giving in a threatening manner to get what we want from our country club membership. I've been in situations where people have demanded that I preach a certain sermon series or they'll remove all of their financial giving. I've also been in situations where members have voted based on personal preferences rather than the will of God. This type of membership is all about receiving rather than giving. This membership is all about I, me, myself. And I hope that you see that that type of membership doesn't reflect the biblical membership that we saw in the Fellowship of Believers in Acts 2 and in the early church. So if that's not what church membership is, what behaviour should we actually be seeing in the church member themselves? What are the characteristics of a godly church member? How should they be accountable to one another? Well, I have six very quick things that I want to show you that again are biblically based to show how church members should operate together. Number one, members should be active. There are two elements to this. 
First, your attendance, and second, your service. Your regular attendance at church is not just a matter of opinion, and it's stated in Matthew 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The best way to stir one another up, to love one another and to serve God is to come together in worship, to praise him, to learn about Jesus and to be a family together. Remember, we shouldn't view church as what can I get out of it? Rather, it should be what can I give to others? In coming together, you have an opportunity to speak encouraging words, to pray for one another, to help each other learn more about Christ and to point others to Jesus. And so with regards to church uh, attendance, D.L. Moody, an American evangelist, said, church attendance is as vital to a disciple as a transfusion of rich, healthy blood to a sick man. And I often see uh, and hear people that say they have a pretty good reason to not spend time with God's people. Excuses like I can't be bothered to show up or I can't really find the time are, are ultimately nonsense because the person that is in Christ wants to come together for that vital life-giving transfusion of love and grace and mercy and worship before Jesus. The second area, though, is that of service. There is a saying in church that 95% of the work is done by 5% of the people. 95% of the work is done by 5% of the people. And let me be very clear here, that is not a biblical concept. As members of the local church, we are tasked to serve God with gifts and skills that he has given us. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, God gives us life. He then gives us special skills that we are able to use for the sake of his kingdom. And the greatest example of service that we are to follow is Jesus himself. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To be an active member, you must attend and you must serve. And if you view membership inappropriately, then you become self-focused and you'll just see it as a chore or duty. But if you view membership biblically, you'll see it as a privilege to give up your life for the sake of others, for your local church family, so that you can have an opportunity to serve their needs and lead them to Jesus. Secondly, members should be united. Members should be united. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi. And in this letter, he is dealing with a couple of problematic members. And he writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Both verses start with a root problem, and that problem is self do nothing out of self, verse 3, do not look at self, verse 4. So the biggest killer of unity in the church is self. It is the agenda of what I want to do. It's all about what I want, what I can get. I want to sit here. I want to worship like this. I want the sermon life to be this way. The motive is self and it separates us from the nature of our own personal worship before the Lord because it's all about me. 
Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist minister, writes, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. The church is weaker as a whole when Christians are drawn apart because of self. Yet also in Philippians 2, we have uh, the repetition of the antidote to the issue of self. Value others, verse 3, and consider others' interests, verse 4. The antidote is to let Christ live in and through us as we let ourselves die and live for Jesus. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Self should not exist in the church. We're called to die to self and crucify the flesh and pick up our cross daily. And so Tom Rayner on this matter states, the strange thing about membership is that you actually give up your preferences. You're there to meet the needs of the others. You're there to serve others. You're there to give. You're there to sacrifice. To be one in Christ, to be koinonia, to be ecclesia, to be the body of Christ, we must cement ourselves together, meaning we need to remove the issue of self and live sacrificially for others. And this is what it means to be in unity. Not that we're in agreement, but that we're in our willingness in our heart to serve others and put others before ourselves. Uh, thirdly, members should learn and teach. Members should learn and teach. Do you know that as a church member, each one of you has a responsibility to learn God's word and then to impart it to others? Titus 2 and verses 2 to 6 give us this picture and how we're all tasked, each one of us, to bring about the next generation in gospel work, gospel knowledge and Bible reading. It's like a family helping one another go deeper into God's word. And in Titus 2, we read something specific about older men. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Now, the specific word here he uses for older is the Greek word presbytes. That means someone that is older than the age of 50, maybe all the way up to the age of 100. Now, old age is often associated with things such as maturity and wisdom and patience, but it's not always the case. In fact, some older men find themselves depressed, struggling to find meaning in life and finding it less fulfilling, less satisfying. But for the older men that are Christians, they have a specific task. They're to show greater love and desire for God. They're to take Moses as an example. He was 80 when he led the people of Israel out of Egypt. Or John Wesley as another example. After 40,000 sermons and 200 books he, was, books, he was saddened that he could only work 15 hours each day because he needed to sleep a little bit more. You see, Paul exhorts older men to cast off grumbling, to cast off bitterness and to live with maturity, with wisdom and with patience. You're to live your lives not in extravagance, but prioritising how to serve others. You're to be self-controlled, one that rejects the world, one that stands firm on the word of God. You're to be sound in faith, trusting God's wisdom, power and love, never doubting the promises of God. You're to be sound in love towards God and his people and to non-Christians. You see, all of this leads towards a dignified, wise, patient, mature older man, one that has a strong foundation, and namely that God is faithful to them and they are faithful to God. 
through the example of older men in the local church. We will have a, a, a great way of seeing what the love of God does in your life. Through the example of older men, young men and women will rise up fearing the Lord, loving the Lord and being gracious towards his people. The responsibility of discipleship within the church therefore comes and lies before older men because the Lord tasks them with teaching the next generation. But Titus continues uh, from older men to older women. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women. Again here, Paul is describing older women as kind of 50 years and above. And more than likely, these women will have been married, they'll have had kids grow up, and maybe the kids have now moved out. And Titus is teaching here that older women need to be reverent in the way they live, to be someone that is of good repute, someone that behaves like Christ in their life. Now, it's common as uh, older women go towards retirement age. For them, uh, they tend to have more time on their hands. Kids have moved out and moved on, and therefore there is a little bit more time on their hands. And Paul exhorts women to not fill this time by being slanderers and being addicted to too much wine. Instead, Paul discourages the moving from house to house, conversation to conversation, and bringing about gossip. He discourages the excessive drinking, the excessive slandering. He discourages this negative sinful behaviour. Instead, he encourages older women to teach the younger women of the church. And notice this responsibility here. This isn't given to Titus the pastor. It's not given to the older men of the church. It's given to the older women of the church to teach, train and equip the younger women of the church. You're to encourage the younger women to love what is good, to love their husbands, to love their children. You see, as older women, you are to be the example before the church. You're to love family, to put Christ first, to be godly in your actions. Through your example, young women will rise up loving their families, loving Christ and becoming interested more in a deep relationship with the Lord. Through your example, young women will teach and raise their children to live in a godly way. You see, older men and older women are examples to learn God's word and then to impart it to the next generation of the church. Titus further continues with younger women. Younger women are to uh, love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. You see here, we've got the older women, older men being an example, and then the next generation living out that example. And here we have younger women loving their husbands and loving their children. But then we also have in Titus the younger men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Paul has one very simple instruction for young men, to be self-controlled. Younger women, to look to the older women for an example. Younger men, to look to the older men as an example. And the younger men are to be self-controlled. They are to flee from anger, from sexual desires, from immorality, and they are to be godly young men. And more important, they are to be a generation that focuses on Jesus. Remember, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. All of the church is working together, being examples, learning God's word, imparting wisdom to one another, and therefore growing in fellowship. 
I'm laboring this point because this is something we often get wrong within the church membership. We think it's just the responsibility of the leaders and the pastors to bring about this training and equipping. No, we are all tasked to bring that training and equipping, that knowledge of our Lord Jesus and the growing depth of our faith to one another. Fourthly, as church members, we should be known for being prayers. Members of the local church should be constant in prayer, not only individually, but corporately. Consider two really important verses, James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Do you see how we're coming together in prayer, confessing, repenting and seeking forgiveness? More than that, we're to come before the Lord and pray in all things and for all things. So at the very backbone of a church member is that of prayer. For the power of prayer lies not in the one who prays, not even in the faith of the one who prays, but rather in the holy God that we pray toward, who is alive and who has authority to answer our prayers in great power. So as a church family, as a member, we're to be accountable for our prayer for one another, to pray for those older women, younger uh, women, uh, pray for those older men, younger men, and let them be examples, praying that the Lord will lead them to teach others. Prayer is a fundamental element to our accountability. Fifthly, though, we should have, as members, be living by integrity. We should have integrity. We're in an age where people say one thing but do another. We see uh, Christians who say that they follow Jesus, but their everyday actions and conversations do not reflect it. Members of the church, though, should reflect the head of the church, that being Jesus. Integrity is that outward person being the same as the inward person and the inward person being the same as the outward person. To lack integrity is to have either the outward or the inward at odds with one another. Essentially saying one thing but doing another or doing another and saying one thing. You see, integrity fundamentally shows what is going on in your heart and what you truly believe in. James 3 verse 8. The tongue, it is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. In other words, we're not to say one thing that is a blessing, then say one thing that is a cursing. We have to choose who will serve, Satan and his dominion or God and his kingdom. If we're serving God in his kingdom, then our speech, our thoughts and our behaviour should reflect it. And it should not circle back to that old life where our speech, our thoughts and our behaviour was for Satan. And so integrity is all about saying, I love Jesus but then living it out together. And so our accountability within the church membership is to ensure that there's great integrity of faith in each member of the church. At sixth and finally, members are to be marked by submission. Members are to be marked by submission. And there's three key people that we are to submit to. First, we're to submit to one another. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Second, submitting to our church leaders. 
Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Third, submit to Jesus, James 4, 7. Submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now there's going to be some who will state very clearly that they're uncomfortable with the idea of submission, whether that is because of certain leaders or certain theologies or just the word itself, submission. Many have this view that they have to refuse being members because simply they will not submit to one another. Instead, they choose just to attend and be involved a little bit, but they'll fall short of this biblical command to submit. I think the easiest, simplest way to respond to that is Charles Spurgeon gives an amazing quote as to what it means to submit to one another in church membership. This is what Charles Spurgeon says. I know there are some who say, well, I have given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to the church. Now, why not? Because I can be a Christian without it. Are you quite clear about that? You can be as good as a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as being obedient. What is a brick made for? To help build a house. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it's just a good brick while it is kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It is a good for nothing brick. So you rolling stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live and you are much to blame for the injury you do. You see, in all of this, what we're building is this picture of what church membership is. Firstly, that you're a Bible-believing Christian, a gospel-believing Christian. Secondly, that you have been baptised, declaring to the world that you're a Christian. Thirdly, that there's certain behaviours that you live by and that you're accountable to one another in. That you will serve the Lord, that you will attend church, that you will pray for one another, that you'll set an example before one another, that you'll learn and you'll grow, that you will will reflect Jesus in your behaviour and that you'll submit to one another as a building getting cemented together and that accountability of one another builds this picture of a gospel-believing global and local church membership. So in conclusion, is church membership biblical? The simple answer is yes, yet the answer must go deeper than that. Which really brings me around to a working definition of church membership recognised by Tom Rayner and Jonathan Lehman, Michael Horton and many others. And this is ultimately what I've been trying to get at in this session. What is church membership? Well, here it is. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Therefore, a church member is a person who has been officially and publicly recognised as a Christian before the nations. As Christians, we are members of the global church, called to come together in the local church membership, called to live a holy and pleasing life before the Lord Jesus. And I pray that this session has been helpful for you to understand not only is it biblical to be a church member, not only is there reasons that you should be a church member, but also how you come about living together, bringing that cementing together that Corrie Ten Boom talked about, that true wonderful unity that is the local church body. And my prayer would be that we here at Lincoln Baptist would not only promote the church, promote church membership, but we would continue to be accountable towards one another as we live and grow in Jesus together.
Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time together to, to just learn about church and church membership. We pray that it will be useful for people, that they'll be encouraged to come to know you, encouraged to be baptised, encouraged to remain accountable towards one another. And Father, we pray that we'll be officially affirming and formally affirming people's faiths as they come and cement with us, cementing together to live for Jesus. Father, we pray that you would get all the glory and that our worship and our sacrifice for you would be pleasing to you and that it would bring all honour to your name. So in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.